Uh, let, let, let me first put it, put it this way, that there's a misconception about the sharing economy. There's nothing sharing about the Uber platform. It's all about taking. And my view is that Uber is a robber baron draining each and every country of resources, human resources and financial resources. And that was the voice of a driver from South Africa, one of the tens of millions of people all over the globe who one would consider to be quote-unquote gig workers. The corporate propaganda campaign has for a long time made being a gig worker sound like great freedom and flexibility when it's really just another word for exploiting people for the sake of bigger profits. So what's up with the gig worker's life, especially during the pandemic? Well, that's on tap for today's episode. And speaking of vulnerable workers, pandemic or not, for decades, domestic workers have been among the most exploited folks, especially in comparison to the crucial role they play in the lives of so many people. The pandemic has made life even more precarious for millions of domestic workers all across the globe, as you will hear today from a leading international domestic workers advocate. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for May 20th, 2020. As usual, this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job, decent pay and benefits, and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. You can also hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m., and you can find us throughout the digital world on places like Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. Of course, we depend not just on our large financial sponsor, but many small financial supporters like many of our listeners. So please do go over to workinglife.org today and click on the podcast and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. So before I get to my guest, it's just breathtaking how badly the elected leaders of the country are handling the economic fallout of the pandemic, not to mention, of course, the medical crisis. And I mean that it's pathetic how it's handled on a bipartisan level. It's a catastrophe worthy of a Marie Antoinette waving of the hand, dismissing the implosion of millions of people's lives with a let them eat cake declaration. Consider these two snippets over the past few days. You have the worst human being in the United States Senate, and there is stiff competition for the honor. And his name is Mitch McConnell, who, with the consent of almost his entire caucus, is saying, let's wait to see how the previous stimulus works before giving more money to people and, of course, helping state and local governments. Now, let's recount. People got a measly $600 or $1,200 one time per person in government support, a one-time check that for millions of people won't even cover the rent and for sure won't cover a month's basic expenses of rent, food, utilities, and the like. It's simple. This is the personal and ideological wrapped into one. It doesn't affect people like McConnell, who is rich and who is driven not just by an immoral lust for power, but the mindless hatred of a robust government minding after the welfare of the people. He just does not give a damn. 
So for people like McConnell and other rich people in the Senate and the vast majority of people in the United States Senate are wealthy in their own right, those people are just not affected by the economic consequences of the pandemic collapse. You've got millions of people who can't afford to buy food, people lining up by the droves to get food at food pantries. You've got millions of people who are worried about paying their mortgage, who are worried about paying their rent, not to mention the debt that they've already accumulated through college and for having medical disasters, which is a huge cause of bankruptcy in the country. You've got millions of people who were paid substandard wages, even when they were working, who now don't have more than $400 to pay for an emergency. That's the majority of the people. And yet people like McConnell and people in leadership say, let's wait. Let's see how this pathetic first attempt at stimulus works. In the meantime, millions and millions of people are suffering. But you know what? Democrats should be ashamed as well. And here's your touchstone for that. Who is calling just a couple of days ago for the hiring of millions of people by the government at a decent wage to become virus contract tracers? In other words, to have a huge federal jobs program Maybe not just for contract tracers, but let's say to rebuild roads. Well, it's not Nancy Pelosi. It's not Chuck Schumer. And it's not Joe Biden. It's Mark Cuban, the billionaire sports and tech owner. These leading weak-minded, small bore, quote unquote, leaders are even opposed to the absolutely essential and brilliant idea laid out in a bill by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal who is proposing, as I've tweeted and many others have suggested, to nationalize all payrolls for the entire length of the pandemic and pay people up to $90,000 on an annualized basis. In other words, make all unemployed people and underemployed people employees of the federal government. It's the only solution for such a broad-based collapse of the economy. Pelosi wouldn't even include Jayapal's proposal in the recent $3 trillion next phase bill proposal, which is probably dead on arrival at the Senate. But let's make that argument because the $3 trillion, that next phase bill, is far too small. It's inadequate for the crisis. Keep in mind, again, that this is all happening with the background of 35 to 50 million people unemployed or underemployed. Those are the people who are in those food lines, which are growing in every single state, in every single big city. These are people who don't have money to cover rents and utilities. There must be a much bigger response. And we, the people, have to get out into the streets. And I think this is the time for a general strike, a general strike which is aimed at two things, getting the government to nationalize all payrolls, so that everybody gets an income and to make sure, obviously, that everybody, all workers, all frontline workers are working at jobs and are protected, that their safety and health are protected. These are the twin ideas for a general strike. It's out there. And I think that the people will respond in huge masses. Now, moving to my guest, propaganda is a can't be without tool for corporations and elites. It's essential to prop up the ideas of American exceptionalism and the wonders of the so-called free market to keep up the model of exploitation of people at work. One of these pieces of propaganda over many, many 
decades was that we have the quote unquote best workers in the world, which aside from being hugely racist, it's very telling that corporations and elites and American politicians like to push this idea of American exceptionalism, but of course, never pay workers who are supposedly the best workers in the world. Don't ever pay them decent wages or give them basic benefits. Calling people gig workers is one of those subtle traps. People say, hey, I've got a gig. That doesn't sound too bad. Actually, in the music business, it's a shorthand for success. Until, of course, you figure out what a musician is actually being paid for the gig, which is close to poverty wages, if not actual poverty wages. And that's the point today when the gig economy is talked about in anywhere from upbeat to just a mundane description. Because the truth is that the gig economy is just another way of exploiting people that is no different from dispatching workers down into the deadly confines of coal mines, with the key difference being that eventually most miners back in the day had a union looking out for them, and they actually got decent pay and benefits and a real pension, and mines got a bit safer, though it never became totally safe and black lung disease was always riding on a miner's shoulder. Gig workers, though, mostly don't have a union, and they have little control over their work lives, from bad pay, irregular pay, schedules that are all over the map, no job security, and certainly no pension. The whole gig economy is a dream for capitalists. They get to have a pool of workers who can be used and abused at the beck and call of a supply chain or a big tech company, and at the lowest cost possible. And not a surprise... Lots of gig workers are at great risk during the pandemic. To talk more about the lives of gig workers, it's fantastic to have on the show Bama Athreya, an economic policy fellow at the Open Society Foundation and a veteran social movement activist. She's just recently kicked off a podcast to talk about her work around gig workers, which you can find at thegigpodcast.com. Now, the average listener, Bama, would think of a gig worker, especially someone who works on their own or potentially someone who works in a sweatshop as someone who is really, really at the bottom level of poverty and is really living without any of the background and conditions and benefits that other people have, regular employees. How would you define it in terms of the work and the people you've talked to? I've talked to what we're calling gig workers all around the world. And I've actually come to dislike this term gig worker because I think it means so many different things in different contexts. And in the United States, that term really kind of arose when you had these new shiny new tech companies coming up about a decade ago. And claiming to be part of what they were calling a sharing economy. And I mean, you know, the ride hailing apps and, and things like Airbnb and WeWork and saying, oh, this is a sharing economy. And if you're a gig worker, there was something a little bit glamorous about it. You know, like you're, you're really in the tech sector. You're really not just a, you know, an informal worker or a precarious worker. You're in the tech sector. But I've worked around the world in, you know, countries like Bangladesh and, you know, uh, Nicaragua and places where just about everybody actually is a gig worker because what they do day to day is they hustle. They, they don't have regular jobs. 
They're just trying to get the next gig, the next thing that will give them a little bit of income to get through to the next day. So, you know, here I was sort of in the United States, but working with these other workers around the world. And I was fascinated by the fact that even in really low wage countries where workers are precarious and they are in what we are used to thinking of as the informal sector, right? They, they've never had permanent jobs. They've never had benefits. These apps were coming in. And I mean, the one that really blew my mind was I was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, a little over a year ago. And um, in Cambodia, it has always been the case that, you know, I mean, all, for many years, I've been going back and forth there for many years, that you kind of hail, there are these motorcycles, and they pull little rickshaws on the back, and you hail one, and then you say, I'll give you a buck, and they say, no, I want three bucks, and, you know, then you say, okay, how about two bucks, and then you get in their little motorcycle thing, and off you go. They all had apps. They all had apps. And so I, I just got fascinated by the fact that this you know, you've had this clash between this vast precarious economy around the world and this high tech new shiny gig thing. And now we're calling all of it gig work. But, you know, I think we have to step back and say, wow, what what it really is, is precarious work. And it really dates back, actually, when you mentioned the digital world and these digital companies. I remember back in the day when Permatems were fighting Microsoft and really the underlying idea, they were essentially gig workers as well. They were considered, quote unquote, independent contractors. That was the fancy word that was used then. And to add to your point about those things being connected to shiny apps at the time, what the tech world emphasized was, isn't this great? You all have this great flexibility. You can do all this stuff at home. You can have jobs that you might not necessarily work in traditional workplaces, but essentially, and tell me what your thought about this is, essentially what independent contracting or gig worker signifies is you are going to be exploited by us. You're not going to have benefits. You're not going to have a real pension. You're not going to have a set schedule. You're not actually going to know how many hours you might work in a given month. And certainly your wages are going to be very unstable. That, then, that's exactly right. And that, again, is what fascinated me, that something that was being sold here, and particularly, I think, starting in around 2009, right, when we had the recession, and lots of people could not find regular full-time employment with benefits, here comes this new, you know, digital economy, these platforms saying, don't worry, you can drive for Uber. It's fine. And you can be part of this tech economy. But it really was just precarious work. And one of the things lately, you know, to your point here that um, just really irritated me and, you know, I did a, a blog about it. It just got on my nerves so much was there was um an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, this was just about a month ago, and as, as you know, Jonathan, and I know you've talked about on this show, like, you know, they, they, Rich are actually just starting to say all the quiet parts out loud. And so this editorial said, hey, millions of people are now, you know, unemployed, but it's okay, because isn't it great that we have this gig economy, and everybody can just get, you know, start buying groceries as shoppers for Instacart so we don't have to worry about unemployment. And I was like, that's the whole, this is the point, right? This is actually what these companies are set up to do. They're set up to push people into this kind of precarious work. And, and that's really sort of, you know, what is, um, that's part of the business model. That's something that I unpacked in the course of all these interviews that I did with, with, app workers around the world, with platform workers around the world this year, 
was that the business model is really about pushing people into taking work that is short term. You don't know how much you're going to make. You never know, you know, what the hours are going to be. That is the model. They want everyone in that kind of work. And a lot of this obviously is connected to the question of power. And I think, tell me what you've uncovered in your work, you can track the rise of whether we call them perma temps, independent contractors, or gig workers to the decline of unions. Because back in the day when we had strong unions, unions believed that everybody should have strong benefits, real pensions, decent wages. And so I think that what you just described, the model of the companies, the corporate power over people, the ability of companies to decide how many hours you're going to have, what your pay is going to be, essentially unilaterally, really tracks exactly the decline of unions here and around the world. I think it's the, you know, it's that parallel decline of unions and uh, there's the government piece of it as well in regulation, mm, right? Good point. And the weakening of labor regulation, of labor legislation that cre- created protections in the workplace. And the ways in which I've seen gig workers starting to fight back is to go back to those legislative frameworks, right, where they can, I mean, where they exist. And um, starting to try to organize even in places where unions have historically been very weak, right? And again, I've been doing work in in some really low-wage, you know, a place like India, for instance, uh, where workers are starting to organize and then they're starting to say, look, we need to have that collective power to push government to regulate these companies again. As for the companies, what is um, fascinating about some of these companies. And, and right now, my, my major focus is on Uber. Um, and it's not just Uber, but Uber is just such a classic example, is they don't just set out to sort of disrupt, you know, this whole thing about disrupting, right? Disrupting industries. They're actually trying to disrupt legislation, reg, you know, regulation as well. And that is part of the business model. Um, as you know, and I, I don't I hope you don't mind if I mention this, I did a lot of these driver interviews and then compiled them into a podcast, which is called The Gig, and, and we've just released it. And um, the second episode is coming out this week. And in it, I, I talked to a really fabulous city-level municipal regulator, Mira Joshi, who was the former New York City Taxi and Limousine Commissioner. And it's a, it's a fantastic and really fascinating interview because she is one of these examples of a regulator, uh, one of the few in the world that actually stood up when these gig companies, these app-based companies came in and, and started just saying, well, we're just technology companies and we don't employ people and you can't hold us accountable because they're not our workers and said, yeah, actually I can. Actually, I can. And she did. And, um, you know, it was really a pleasure to get that. And I hope an inspiration too to, to other municipal governments around the world, because there are things that governments can do. And, you know, it, it, it is that kind of circle coming back to what you were saying about unions. We're not going to build up worker power again unless we, you know, have that be iterative with building up our collective clout as citizens 
with governments. And yes, to my listeners, I would say you should really listen to the fantastic first episode of The Gig Podcast, and you can find it at thegigpodcast.com. And I wondered, Mama, when you were talking to folks, did you find kind of that contradiction a little bit? People felt a little bit potentially misled when they first signed up for a gig job. What was the breakdown between the folks who were really excited at first and then were really completely disappointed versus people who got into gig jobs because they simply had no choice. I, I assume there was a little bit of a mix. Yeah, there was actually a lot of excitement uh, at first among the people I talked to. And and what I also want to, you know, what was great uh, to me about doing these interviews and what I wanted to do by letting these drivers tell their stories in their own voice on the podcast is you get to meet them and they're not what you would expect. And uh, mind you, I interviewed drivers in South Africa, in India, um, in Brazil, right? And in the US and in Europe, and they all have great stories. And a lot of them are, you know, really quite different in terms of what they did in their past careers. There, It's not all necessarily what you know you might expect from somebody who decides to drive rideshare in in India for instance or in South Africa their stories one of the things that that a lot of the stories seem to reinforce to me is that the companies when they first came in offered these drivers a really good deal i mean they were paying them lucrative bonuses they were trying to lure them onto the platform with these really high rates and so some of the people who got onto the platform actually had some, some assets, right? They had some capital and they bought cars, they bought vehicles. These were not your kind of, you know, most sort of poorest of the poor or, or, or desperate people by any means. They were like, hey, here's a good business opportunity. Let me invest in a vehicle or two and take advantage of this, what seems like a very good business opportunity. And then they got squeezed and pushed into very difficult and precarious circumstances because the companies kept pushing down their rates, right? Pushing them down and down and down. And so that was one of the things that struck me is that we're talking about people who like actually had a decent income and like had options before they got onto these platforms and then got screwed. So because we are in the midst of this pandemic, I thought that this was a good opportunity to bring in someone like you with your expertise on gig workers, because it seems to me that right now, as we're speaking, the particularly vulnerable people are number one people of color, as we found out, especially when it comes to contracting actually the coronavirus because of the communities they lived in, the the economic depression and economic repression that folks have suffered really over a number of decades. How does the gig worker now fit into the most vulnerable worker category in this pandemic, either because of their exposure to the virus, the fact they have to work no matter what you mentioned, for example, Instacart workers, or the fact that they just don't have any support, any support network, social network benefits that will get them through this. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's such a tough time. And I have continued to interview some of the people that I met, you know, just even though we're all self-isolating by long distance, by calls like this, and they say they have to still be out there, right? If they're driving or if they're doing delivery, there are no good choices. They either have no income because their income is day to day, or they are risking not only their lives, but 
their families and their communities, right? Because if you're driving and you don't have any ability to, to protect, to, to distance yourself in your vehicle and you get something, then your family potentially is exposed to it as well. So, I mean, it's been very hard. One of the things though, I mean, I, you know, not to, not to just be gloomy about it is that as I've talked to, gone back and, and re-interviewed some of the, the drivers that I talked to at this time and, and asked them, you know, what things are like for them now, they have also, I've been really struck by the fact that they have all kept in touch with each other. One of the stories that I tell on this podcast, I mean, again, through them, is that they have started to organize. And the organizing has made a huge difference. I mean, a huge difference. So at a moment like this, where they all are really squeezed, they have each other and they've been supporting each other and they've been setting up funds for each other. And if they hadn't been organizing all through this past, you know, couple of years, they wouldn't have that, even that today. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic underscores another way in which they are vulnerable, and that goes directly to the unemployment system in the country. And it's actually, ironically, it's the way in which they've now been included in the unemployment system. As you quite well know, unemployment really goes to those people who are considered employees. And the, at some point, an employer either furloughs them or lays them off and they can apply for unemployment. That was typically not available to independent contractors slash gig workers. But specifically, the under the pandemic laws and the legislation that was passed at the federal level, you can, as a gig worker, I'm pretty sure in all states, but certainly in most states, you can now at least apply and try to get covered under the pandemic era unemployment system, which is kind of odd, but it really underscores how in normal times, gig workers are so exposed. It's it's true. I, and I think it is one of these things where, you know, perversely, maybe this is an opportunity for us to point out just how out of date our very conception of the employment relationship is. And this is a battle that, you know, has been fought in courts in California. They had this tremendous victory last year of really dealing with, you know, what have been, as you know, decades of misclassification, but taken to new levels by some of these uh, platform companies and got a bill passed that made it clear that there there was a means test that companies like Uber and Lyft, you know, if, if you look at it, have to understand, you know, we have to understand that the people who drive for those companies are employees. And that is so critically important today in the midst of all of this, first of all, because as you point out, those drivers can, you know, they can actually apply for unemployment benefits. But also, I just uh, saw there was a report that came out, I think it was just last week from UC Berkeley, that demonstrates that over the past few years, you know, since the companies were declared to, to be responsible for their drivers as employees, they have completely failed to pay in to the unemployment, you know, compens- their, their taxes that would go into the unemployment compensation fund. So they potentially owe all this money to the state system as well, which is really important right now, you know, right now when drivers need to access it. So hats off to California for, for getting that law, you know, into place. And I think we've got to now look and say, this is what we need to do everywhere. Ah, and so that's leads me to my final question to you. 
coming out of this crisis, I, like you, think there's opportunity in, in a crisis, meaning we have people's attention. It's a terrible thing to go through that you get to this point. But if I gave you a magic wand and I gave you the power and you have to do this in one minute or less or two minutes, how would you remake the economic system to protect the gig workers and make it clear that they can't be used kind of as these disposable parts by companies. Essentially, you'd be undoing a very fundamental part of the business model, certainly in the global supply chain. But what would you do to change these things? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I love your magic wand question because it forces you to say, what's the most dramatic thing that needs to happen? And I think I would break up some of these really, really big firms, the Amazons, right, even the Ubers, their business model actually, you know, right now they don't make, I mean, Amazon makes lots of money, but Amazon played the long game. Uber's going in the same direction. What they really want to do is capture enough data in enough places around the world that all of us are hooked on the platform and they conquer the market, right? And I don't think we're going to get better business models unless we break up these giants create, you know, it's not the apps themselves that are at fault. They're just a tool. It's the ownership of the apps. It's who owns and who controls all that data. And we have to, you know, we've got to take them apart, create more real actual competition at local levels. And there are some really great movements to start worker-owned cooperatives, even in the platform space. But there's no room for those to exist in markets where the real resources data, and it's monopolized by one or two big companies. So I say break them up, create data trusts at municipal levels, and you know let all sorts of businesses flourish and use that data and provide a variety of options, including worker-owned options. Domestic workers are, in my mind, the classic example in the economy of everyday essential workers who, at the same time, are always on the brink. Meaning, the brink of losing a job at the whim of a household decision, for example, to fire a person for no particular reason. Now, the pandemic has put domestic workers at great risk. Think of it logically. If you're a domestic worker, you can now be locked down in a home with your client essentially enslaved, with nowhere to go and no social distancing space. You could easily be trapped in a home, forced to stay inside because of a curfew somewhere in another country without personal protection equipment. And throughout the world, domestic workers work with little or no legal protections. Here to give us an up-to-the-moment update on the crisis facing domestic workers is Elizabeth Tang, the General Secretary of the International Domestic Workers Federation, who joins me from Hong Kong. So maybe the baseline to start here, Elizabeth, with the situation for domestic workers is actually to look before the pandemic so that my listeners understand, and they're probably pretty aware and cognizant of the fact that if you took a ladder 
uh, a magical ladder, a mythical ladder, and you lined up workers from top to bottom with workers at the top having the best wages and the strongest protections. And then at the very bottom, you had folks that maybe were even slaves and had no protections and and no wages and were very, very poor. Domestic workers probably were in a good day, if I can use that term, always struggling to make a decent living, have decent rights in most countries around the world. Is that correct? Yeah, domestic workers uh, in most places uh, of the world you know, uh, those uh, at the bottom most are not only because uh, they do domestic work, you know, which uh, people do not consider as work uh, or work has uh, any value, you know, because uh, traditionally women do them, you know, mothers, daughters uh, do them and, and never complain and don't get any pay, any reward. Uh, but also because um, mostly uh, they are women from uh, marginalized communities, you know, this um, uh, minority ethnic, ethnic groups, uh, migrants, uh, you know, uh, outcast uh, people, uh, you know, indigenous people. So uh, to start with, you know, they are from the weakened or disadvantaged communities who don't get any respect, any uh, protection anyway. So uh, the, uh, uh, the, the women who have very, very uh, uh, little opportunities to get jobs uh, in other um, uh, sectors. So uh, domestic work is the only option. And, and they have to get uh, or to accept uh, whatever uh, pay you know, give it to them. And as you point out in an important report that the International Domestic Workers Federation put out recently, and I'm now quoting, if you look at the economy at large, domestic work is underpaid and undervalued as it is sometimes led by migrants, women, undocumented people, and people of color. And so I assume, Elizabeth, that that kind of explains the reality that so many domestic workers are quite vulnerable. And in many ways, they, as you point out, they come from homes where they are potentially the only breadwinner or a key income earner for a family that is really struggling to make ends meet, I would imagine that there aren't a whole lot of domestic workers who have huge savings in their bank accounts so that when you come to a a situation of a pandemic, for example, or an economic crisis, they don't really have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm going to just stay at home or I'm going to take a few weeks off, right? No, no, no. Uh, uh, All these uh, emergency, health emergency, lockdown, uh, social distancing, you know, are just a nightmare for domestic workers. You know, even though they earn so little, you know, we are talking about a hundred dollars, you know, or even uh, in um, uh, many places, you know, uh, like the Indonesia, Cambodia, uh, you know, even Bolivia, um, you know, Malawi, Namibia, you know, they're earning just about $50, $60 a month. Uh, but, uh, you know, this may be the, the only income uh, uh, the families have for, for a month. And they get cash, 
so when they get cash, you know, immediately they use it to pay food, uh, water, and the school fees for the kids. So if they don't have it, you know, for even a day, and know that they, you know, they have nothing. And so now we look at a pandemic, which then makes things even worse. It exacerbates the situation. If you think about workers who aren't domestic workers, you have all these tens of millions of workers who are out of work, their entire industries are shut down. And then a domestic worker actually has a weird situation sometimes where they may actually not get paid, but they're also locked down at the place where they were working, right? Yeah, exactly. So for those who have work, they are facing the situation that, uh, you know, they are locked down together with their employers. You know, there are many domestic workers who are, are live in, you know, with their employers at the employer's house, uh, especially uh, many migrant domestic workers today are mandated to live with their employers. And then there are also um, many who move from the rural areas to the urban areas, to, you know, to the capital cities normally, uh, to uh, work with employers and stay there. So during the lockdown, and also, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, no flights, airports are closed, so no flights, you know, they are stranded at the employee's house. They cannot go home. And, uh, and they cannot even send money home because uh, they cannot go out and banks are closed or they cannot go out to the banks. And, and so the families at homes are also without money, without cash. And, uh, and, and this is uh, also very, very stressful for, for the migrant uh, domestic workers. And, uh, and, and, and worse still, you know, they are migrants or they are people from the rural area. They don't belong to the... Uh, to the cities where they worked, they are not eligible to the uh, emergency uh, reliefs, uh, emergency measures of the governments, you know, like, you know, the little cash uh, handout to uh, poor people, to workers, they are not eligible to these uh, um, programs and, and they get nothing. Hmm. So they're essentially trapped because as a migrant worker, I mean, I imagine some of them have to travel many, many hours just to get home. So they stay with your, to your point, an employer in a quote unquote good situation when there isn't a pandemic. But now that they're trapped and they're forced to stay at the employer's house because they obviously can't travel, they're locked down, they can't travel hours to get home to their rural situation, their rural village. So they are really trapped. And then they're almost um, a, a foreign person, meaning they have no leverage. They have no uh, legal right to get the money in the local situation. No. And even the healthcare, you know, some of them, it, it actually happens in where I live, Hong Kong. Some of them get infected because their employers are infected. And uh, we have a a tragic case in Brazil where uh, the domestic workers died because of COVID-19 and she got it from her employers and her employees got treated and she did it and she died. And I assume that's because there is no law that requires an employer 
to provide the personal protection equipment that we think about when we think about healthcare workers and people who are caring for people who are ill, elderly individuals, people who are potentially disabled. But when they have COVID-19, there's no real legal situation. And certainly, even if there was a law, how would you actually find out that that's being violated, right? Yeah, sure. Uh Actually, majority of the domestic workers, you know, still are not protected by uh, labor law or social protection regulations. According to the ILO, uh, only 19 out of 65 countries uh, being studied have uh, some kind of re uh, uh, regulations to protect domestic workers. So majority of domestic workers are without any legal protections. And have you found that because of the economic crisis that there are many domestic workers who have lost their jobs and have actually been told, we're not going to pay for you, and then they're basically either cast out into the street with nowhere to go and trapped in a city that they are very uncertain about and perhaps don't even know where to go for support? Do you find that folks, many domestic workers are now in that kind of crisis? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, you are talking about, you know, mostly the uh, undocumented migrant domestic workers who are in these situations uh, in the in uh, some Middle East countries like Lebanon, they are called freelancers, you know, basically, uh, they are domestic workers who don't leave the employers uh, uh, and they work uh, uh, as cleaners, most of the time uh, they work as for several employers uh, at any one time, uh, you know, like a, a part-time uh, domestic workers, and stay and they stay at uh, uh, flats or uh, no dormitories uh, where uh, they they pay their own rent. And in this situation, for you know, almost uh, three months, uh, they have not been called to work. Uh, because, uh, you know, employers, you know, fear that they will bring virus or employers who, who don't work anymore because uh, of the lockdown or, you know, or uh, become uh, jobless. And, uh, and, and because of, this, of the undocumented situations, uh, so when they lose the jobs, you know, they also don't have uh, money to pay the rent. Uh, and, uh, and there are very, very few shelters uh, existing in, in these countries. Uh, and, and the shelters are full and also people who run the shelters are, are fearing that, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the crowded situations, uh, the a pandemic, uh, you know, will, uh, will spread and they stop uh, accepting more people into the shelters. So shelters are either very cramped and very uh, risky and, or, you know, also there are many outside who want to get in but, but do not get in. And worse still, you know, because of their status, uh, which is you know, not uh, legal according to governments, they cannot even go to their uh, government, uh, you know, the embassies, you know, the missions to get help. You know, they are not eligible even uh, to get help from their own government. 
And there has to be a significant issue around gender and gender violence specifically. For example, as you point out in your report, in the European Union, women comprise 91% of the total number of domestic workers. And then you look at some other countries, say the Philippines, where there are up to 1.4 million domestic workers, most of whom are women and girls, as you point out. So have you heard about, do you know specifically statistics or just anecdotally where you're seeing a rise in violence against women, either sexual assault or or violence, casting them out of the home? And as you point out, they're not able to go to shelters because shelters are overflowing. Yes, uh, this is... Uh a very critical um, uh, problem, uh, especially at this time. Uh, we don't have statistics, uh, but uh, our members in uh, several countries have given us reports. Uh, in uh, in Brazil, uh, uh, where you know our affiliates have uh, turned their offices into shelters, uh, so that uh, their members, you know, the domestic workers who who won and can run away, can run to their union offices uh, to and, and stay there uh, because their homes are too far away. And uh, we also have, uh, you know, recently um, uh, received, um, you know, also reports uh, from um, uh, from the GCC countries, you know, like Kuwait, uh, you know, where uh, women also run to uh, to shelters. Uh, no, but then, uh, I mean, we still have to consider these uh, lucky ones. And I mean, there are so many who cannot uh, run away. They are trapped in an employer's house and they can only send, uh, send us uh, messages. Uh, but no, really, we don't know, uh, uh, know what to do. And I assume that what you end up now with a situation that domestic workers are facing is they want to get the attention of the authorities and even non-governmental organizations. But the vastness of this crisis, the economic crisis, where you have tens of millions of people losing their jobs, where industries are shutting down day after day, I assume that the domestic workers are in some way falling off the radar screen. They are basically being forgotten because of the vast crisis that really nobody can get a handle on. Yeah, exactly. Actually, uh, uh, very few governments uh, include domestic workers uh, in their emergency relief uh, programs. Uh, so basically, they are being forgotten. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, completely uh, scandalous. You know, uh, you know, while there are uh, you know, still millions of domestic workers who, who work hard, day and night to keep the employers safe, to keep employers home clean and healthy. And they are still taking care of the sick, you know, the elderly, the small kids. And, and our society still depends so much on them, you know, to, uh, to keep, uh, you know, everything going as normal as much as possible. And, and without domestic workers, you know, you know, many, societies uh, will just stop. So, you know, how can governments, how can our communities forget them? 
you know, they need to, to stay strong and healthy and safe as well so that, you know, the whole society uh, can continue to flourish. And my great fear, and I assume your great fear, is that this then has the potential to really reverberate and continue now for decades, meaning the economic impact on all domestic workers, because those domestic workers, as we spoke about just a minute or two ago, their families are dependent on that paycheck. So as long as this crisis goes on, this is going to affect them for a very long time. These are folks who are going to have families who are desperate to find food, desperate to find housing. And even when the pandemic ends, they're going to have to try to dig themselves out of this terrible hole that, as you just pointed out, governments are not supporting them. Yes, exactly. You know, that is why my organization, you know, which is uh, workers' organizations, uh, you know, we we believe and uh, our mission is to organize domestic workers for the collective powers to make change. And for the first time, uh, we... Uh, we have taken up the road to give our human humanitarian aid. Uh, we are we have set up a solidarity fund of two million dollars, you know, and and you with that, uh, we we give this to our affiliates in um, over fifty five countries, you know, where they can use, uh, even though it's very little, but they can use it uh, to help those in critical situation uh, to buy. Uh, food, uh, water, you know, medicine, and, and yeah, and, you know, whatever, you know, really emerges. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Bama Athreya and Elizabeth Tang. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. If you'd like to become one of our small donor supporters, please go over right now to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and go over to Patreon and become one of our supporters at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Mm-hmm.